Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I am your host, Lori LeBay, and I am thrilled that you are able to join us here today. We are going to be talking about getting a diagnosis and some of the advances that are um, happening out there so that families don't have to suffer so long with not knowing what the heck is going on. But before I introduce you to our guest, um, I want to just do a few shout-outs here. First is to the Mark Arneson Band. I just really appreciate them letting us use their music called Clarion Call. And you can download that on any of your favorite um, platforms if you would like to do so. And for those of you that are new to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, we are about sound information, not just sound bites. I get it, guys. My mom lived with dementia for 30 years, so I totally understand the frustrations. And we need to be connected to services, products, and tools so that we can live a better life and and have shared experiences. Um, Now, there is uh, something that's really fun. I don't know if you've heard about it. It's called the Memory Camp. It's at Moon Beach in Wisconsin, August 15th to the 18th. And it is designed for people with mild to moderate dementia and their care partners and families to come in and get to know one another and just have a wonderful, wonderful time. I also got from my good friend, uh, Michelle Mason, there is a Women of Faith Caregiver Support Group that meets the fourth Saturday of the month at 2 o'clock Central Time, and um, that is Zoom. And if you are interested in more information, you can email womenoffaith007 at gmail.com. They are also doing um, another program that is Journey to the Cross Ministries and Pastor Jeanette uh, P. Jordan in partnership with Ending Disease and um They are having a a church service, a worship service. It'll be Sunday, July 31st from 3 to 4. And you can get information by emailing um, the Women of Faith group on that as well. We are going to hear from the Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner. And as soon as we are done there, we'll be back and off and running with our program today. I love the footbar walker, and let me tell you why. It is the option for my toolbox that I've been waiting for. Let's be honest. There are some clients who, despite our best rehab efforts, just aren't able to return to performing a sit-to-stand transfer on their own. Now I can offer my caregivers an easier, safer option that doesn't involve hoisting their loved one up from a sitting position. I don't recommend this walker for all of my clients, but I do recommend this walker for those caregivers looking for an easier, safer option with transfers. I would also encourage other therapists to add this walker to their toolbox. It's kind of like having my own mobile parallel bars for the client to pull up on. Whether it's a family caregiver at home helping a loved one with Parkinson's or dementia, CNAs in a long-term care facility assisting their patients, or therapists adapting to client and caregiver-specific needs, we now have a very safe and effective option to offer in the Footbar Walker. Check this product out at thefootbarwalker.com. That's it for today from Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner. Have a great day, and don't forget, if you can't do it, adapt it. I love that walker, and I love the Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner. They are 
loaded with wonderful information and videos about how to adapt to all kinds of life. So if you're having a hip replaced or whatever, check them out. Now, one thing I just realized I didn't mention, and I have to laugh, is our new re- our, our new updated website is live. So go check out alzheimerspeaks.com. There you will find actually one whole page just loaded with multiple pages you can access for free educational resources, and you'll be able to find information out about Arthur's Memory Cafe, um, which I facilitate the conversation the second and fourth Wednesday of the month at 1 o'clock Central, and also Caregiver Connect. Uh, which is sponsored by Brookdale, the fourth Wednesday of the month, which meets in person and also has respite care. So let's get on with our show today. We are going to be talking about, you know, how um, how the diagnostic process can really help um, fight dementia as a whole. And, you know, I hear story after story after story of families struggling so badly to to get a firm diagnosis and many stories um, this two a two to three year process so if this can be tightened up that is fabulous and so we're going to be talking today with Dr Michael K Reiki who is the medical director for uh, neurology at the Quest Diagnostics uh, company and he is a leader in the field of neurology and neuroimmunology. And he also specializes in MS, which is a growing need out there as well. So, um, and Dr. Reiki, I'm so um, thrilled to have you with us. I think, you know, this whole diagnostic process is just so critical to not only the individuals, but their family and friends to know what the heck is going on. So welcome to the show today. Well, thank you for having me. Well, I am, like I said, I'm excited to have this conversation and learn more. But before I get into my line of questions, I always like to ask every guest, if you've personally been touched in your own family or circle of friends by any form of dementia. Well, I, uh, my grandmother actually probably had Alzheimer's disease, uh, but she lived to age 99. My mother is in her late 80s, and I would say she now has some mild cognitive impairment and may, in fact, also be on the road to Alzheimer's. Okay. Yeah, it's hard not to find somebody who hasn't been touched by this disease. It is uh, kind of kind of incredible, the journey. I know when I go out and speak to crowds, I can have, you know, be talking to a 1,000 people, and I'll ask, you know, six different questions. And, you know, at the end, there might be a handful of people that are that are still standing up that haven't been touched. Everybody else has been touched in their life by this disease. And so it's so important for us to have open, honest conversations, you know, regarding what is going on. Um, Let's start with having you tell us a little bit about your background and the role that you play at Quest Diagnostics. So uh, I'm a neurologist. I actually trained in neuroimmunology at the National Institutes of Health. And my main area of interest was in multiple sclerosis. But as you're probably aware, a number of neurodegenerative disorders uh, have a neuroimmunologic component, including Alzheimer's disease. And as part of my background, I was editor-in-chief of the Journal of Neuroimmunology. And so any articles related to Alzheimer's disease and the role of inflammation in Alzheimer's disease often came across my desk because of that. And I was also involved in chairing what's uh, known as a study section where uh, uh, this study section that I was involved with was uh, mostly neuroimmunology, but again, with disorders like Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease, if someone, ha- if someone wrote a grant where they were examining the role of the immune system and contributing to neurodegeneration, that came across my desk. Okay. Now, you know, for you in, in terms of working with Quest Diagnostics, are you specifically looking at 
Alzheimer's disease, or are you looking at other other forms of dementia as well? So we are looking at other forms. I mean, so let's 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 sort of take a step back, right, mm-hmm. uh, and think about how it used to be. So when I was, uh, I hate to admit it, but uh, probably 35 years ago, when I was a neurology resident. Alzheimer's disease was a clinical diagnosis and then a pathologic diagnosis, right? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't until a patient maybe underwent an autopsy or actually had a brain biopsy that one saw the plaques and tangles characteristic of Alzheimer's disease. It's only been in the last 10 to 15 years where people have become comfortable in making the diagnosis in patients who are alive. And that was a big step forward when people were able to do PET scans, for example, and actually see on imaging the uh, plaques and tangles that before we saw in pathology actually be able to see that uh, on an image. And then it's been more recently where people have been able to do testing for what we call biomarkers, that's an ability, for example, in either the spinal fluid and now more recently in the blood, to be able to see these different markers that are characteristic of dementias and different types of dementias. And that becomes important, for example. You know, if you think about Alzheimer's disease, and let's just say compare that to a disorder like Lewy body dementia, they do have some clinical differences, but because Alzheimer's disease is mostly the beta amyloid, and then the tau that causes the tangles, that's different from, say, Lewy body dementia, where it's a protein that's called alpha-synuclein that makes these Lewy bodies that then results in toxicity to the nervous system and uh, eventual problems with your thinking, right? Mm-hmm. And it, the reason that's become important is because if you start looking at the kinds of treatments that people are developing, they're very specific for the molecules that are uh, associated with that specific disorder. So if we think about a drug like aducanumab uh, that you know was recently approved by the FDA, it's specific for beta amyloid. So if you were gonna treat somebody with uh, a dementia, you wanna make sure that the reason that they have that uh, risk for Alzheimer's disease is because they have abnormal amyloid, and then your treatment is going to target specifically that amyloid. Mm-hmm. Which which makes sense. And there's you know there it seems like there's so many different studies, um, you know, looking at so many different things right now, which is great because uh, you know poor. For individuals and families, I mean, they, these diagnoses, they change over time and, you know, they don't necessarily understand why, if it was a misdiagnosis to begin with or if things have progressed and changed within the brain. Do you have a theory on that at all? I don't know if I would say I have a theory on it, but I can tell you as an example, we've been very, as a field, we've been very frustrated in our ability to treat Alzheimer's disease, right? And mm-hmm. I think the thing that's been was was really exciting was when these antibodies were developed that targeted beta amyloid. They really did a great job at removing amyloid from the brain. So people thought, "Oh wow, we, we you know we have something that that potentially can help these people." And unfortunately, until I mean over 20 clinical trials that were targeting amyloid all failed, right? Mm -hmm. And I think part of the reason was that they were diagnosing patients who already had symptomatic Alzheimer's disease, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so let me just sort of explain a little bit about, well, I think what we know about Alzheimer's and, and why these biomarkers are potentially important, right? So let's just say, for example, that somebody 
is age 75 and gets diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. That by that time, if you did a PET scan, you would already see, if it was an amyloid PET scan, that there were a lot of amyloid plaques in the brain. But if you did a regular even CT scan or MRI of the brain, you would see that the brain had already shrunk a great deal. In other words, there already were lots of neurons and synapses, and that's the connections between the neurons that had died. And so even if at that point you were able to remove amyloid, so many neurons had died that we weren't really able to reverse the process. And so the removing the amyloid didn't help those patients, right? Mm -hmm. The thing that's interesting is this process is going on for decades, right? So that if you looked at that same person at age 65, they would be cognitively normal and think that they don't have a care in the world. But if you did a PET scan on that person looking for the amyloid, you might already begin to see that the PET scan was showing that there were these development of the amyloid plaques. And if you did a MRI or CT scan, what you have seen is that because we're now moved back 10 years, that really we don't see necessarily as much of that atrophy or shrinkage of the brain that we saw by the time the patient was diagnosed. So then let's go back 10 years further. And so now we're at age 55. So if we did a PET scan at that point, the person is completely normal. The PET scan is completely normal. But if we start looking at these biomarkers, so for example, if we looked for beta amyloid 42 in the spinal fluid, compared to a normal person, what we would see is there's an actually lower level of that. And the thought is because already some of the beta amyloid that typically would be circulating in the spinal fluid is making its way into the brain and is forming these plaques. But we're so early in the process that we, while we are able to detect that with the biomarker, we can't really detect it on a PET scan yet, and the person is cognitively normal. And I think the reason that's important is that I think the field is, and, and certainly now organizations like the Alzheimer's Clinical Trial Consortium trying to help, you know, companies to get patients who are at risk for the development of Alzheimer's disease but don't have it yet and see if we intervene at that time, is that going to be early enough that we can, in fact, remove the amyloid, stop the formation of tau, and actually prevent the clinical signs and symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you say to those that say, well, it's not always tau? I mean, you think of the NUN study where not, not all of that showed up um, for people. So, I mean, so I guess so this is, that gets to the other, you know, when you start talking about people who have uh, – cognitive dysfunction, right? There are, mm -hmm. first of all, I always say that patients don't necessarily read the textbooks and you could have, and it's actually quite common to see maybe combinations of some of these neurodegenerative disorders. And I think that's going to be important from the standpoint that say, I think I, I do a biomarker and I think that person has risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. And so I treat them to try to remove the amyloid. But mm -hmm. it turns out that they also have alpha-synuclein. If I don't do anything about that, down the road, they could develop signs of Parkinson's disease or Lewy body dementia. And, mm -hmm. you know, I wouldn't have affected that part of the pathologic process. Similarly, somebody could have tau, uh, being the predominant thing, and then they, maybe they have something like frontotemporal dementia, and not and amyloid isn't necessarily what's driving the the pathologic process. So, I think what the biomarkers are allowing us to do is to actually 
uh, help early on in trying to define what it is, what's the pathophysiology behind what's putting these people at risk for dementia. Now, I should point out that mostly we're talking about people who have idiopathic Alzheimer's disease and not the genetic forms of Alzheimer's disease, although the biomarkers show they're abnormal as well. But, you know, if you have mutations, for example, in something like presenilin uh, 1 or 2, that, you know, that you're actually going to be in uh, have much higher levels of beta amyloid than depositing in the brain. At least in the studies that have been so far, it almost feels seems like they're the, they're being overwhelmed. That uh, we may have to use a different strategy to treat those forms of uh, Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I know when when my mom uh, passed away, and again she she lived with uh, dementia for thirty years. Uh, I remember talking with Dr. Fry, and he was looking over the autopsy report because I said, can you just kind of explain this all to me because it was all in, you know, medical terms and, and stuff, and I, I just wanted a deeper understanding. And he he just he kind of gasped at how shrunk my mom's brain was. He's like, in all my years, I've never seen a brain that's atrophied. And then he and then he stepped back and he you know he's like oh I apologize and I'm like well no I said if it's I mean it's something you haven't seen before and it is significant and he said but this is exactly what we should anticipate and we're seeing more and more people live longer you know with the disease um, all the time I mean I, I can name several people that you know are on their you know 20 years or more and. Uh, but we're we're getting diagnosed a little bit earlier in things too. I want to just we've got a couple of people on the line, and I don't know if they are calling to call in. Some people call in just to listen to. That's an option. So let me just double check because if uh, if they do have a question, I do want to uh, let them have that opportunity. So I have somebody from a seven nine three seven number. Uh, you are live and on the air. Uh, did you have a question? For Dr. Ranke at all? Hello? From 7937 uh, is the last numbers of their phone number. You are live and on the air. Did you have a question or a comment? Hello? And this one is from a 616 number. But, again, you never know uh, with this stuff. I'll go ahead and, and just mute them. They must be listening because uh, sometimes people dial in through the computer and they have no idea that that's the number they're calling in on either. Uh, but that's that's how the process goes here. Um, what are you seeing? You know, what what are you guys doing different at Quest Diagnostics that you feel are you know can can help move things forward in terms of people you know getting a proper diagnosis? So I think one of the things that, as you said, we actually were. Uh, one of the places that had for the longest the spinal fluid tests, right? And mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen spinal fluid, but it looks like water, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason is that it, the, this, the, pro, the concentration of proteins in the spinal fluid is a lot less than that in the blood, right? Mm-hmm. And so once we were able to use spinal fluid to help make the diagnosis, it still took a while, I mean, probably two decades, until we were able to do it at the same level of accuracy out of the blood, in part because the levels of amyloid are much lower and because uh, uh, there are other proteins contaminating the blood. And so it was, like, it was more like trying to find a needle in the haystack. Uh-huh. In addition to... Uh, looking at beta amyloid in the blood, we are uh, about to have a test on looking at neurofilament light. We're mm-hmm. also developing a test for phosphorylated tau. Uh, 
and also for total tau in the blood. And so one of the things that having these different markers hopefully will allow us to do is to give an even better sense to the physician about where a patient is on their risk for Alzheimer's disease. And the reason I say it that way, and I think one of the things that's going to be really important for people to understand is that the way our healthcare system has always worked is you wait until somebody gets symptomatic of mm-hmm. a disorder, you try to figure out what it is they have, and then you treat it. Mm-hmm. And what unfortunately we are finding out with Alzheimer's disease is that by the time you get to the point where you're symptomatic, there's already been a lot of damage done, right? Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about the biomarkers is that that's giving us a window into the process when the people when people are still normal cognitively. And, you know, I think one of the things that I always tell people is, you know, these medications, at least the ones that uh, certainly with aducanumab when it was approved, uh, are quite expensive. But we are, as a nation, are spending over a trillion dollars taking care of people with Alzheimer's disease. And so one of the things that I would say is that, you know, if we can do things to help manage Alzheimer's disease, uh, and it was interesting, we did a poll with uh, Harris survey uh, asking physicians, did they think Alzheimer's disease was going to be cured in their future? And most people didn't think that it was going to be cured, but over three quarters of primary care physicians thought that it would become manageable. Mm-hmm. And I think when you think about it in terms of, you know, that person we were talking about earlier, that's 75 when they get Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. If we were able to do an in- intervention and put out their diagnosis or when they become symptomatic till they're 85 or 90, that's 10 or 15 years where this person can still be independent and doesn't require the type of care that often is necessarily and is quite expensive to help take care of people with uh, certainly when they have moderate or severe Alzheimer's disease. And so I think that what will will probably happen fairly soon, uh, when I say soon, certainly in the next few years, is that blood tests will become one of the ways that we first look at people's risk for Alzheimer's disease. We've done that already a little bit with things like APOE. But what mm-hmm. APOE was sort of assessing uh, a genetic part of risk. So if you have APOE4, you have a much higher likelihood of developing Alzheimer's disease. What APOE, but what these markers, uh, what uh, these biomarkers really do is if you're negative for these biomarkers, then it's likely you're not going to have Alzheimer's disease. And that's also important from the perspective of, you know, if you, for whatever reason, have cognitive dysfunction and it's not Alzheimer's disease, that's like what it used to be. I remember when I was a resident, what we did always was try to evaluate for reversible causes of dementia. You know, was this somebody who had low thyroid or was this somebody who had low vitamin B12 or something like that? But if you knew that somebody with cognitive dysfunction didn't have Alzheimer's disease or did and had biomarkers that said this isn't a neurodegenerative disorder, then that then sort of prompts the physician to become much more diligent in trying to find these reversible causes of dementia. Is it pseudo-dementia because they have depression, for example, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that the, the biomarkers are going to be very helpful in that regard as well. But I think that the, the real beauty of, the, uh, of this is that we will have hopefully years in which to help try to alter the pathophysiologic process when the person is still cognitively normal before they have the atrophy like 
like the doctor saw with your mother. Because mm-hmm. by the time you're at that stage, unfortunately, with our current state of medicine, we can't we can't reverse that, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, being able to intervene when the you know very early in the process uh, is going to be probably the way that we're going to uh, help manage this disease. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I it, it's interesting because. You know, there's the the big battle out there with people too of wanting to know or not know, and you know if if they have those biomarkers, will that be used against them um, in health or insurance? Or I mean, there's all of those types of questions that people have too in wanting to keep that private, and and who all is accessing? And there's just such a distrust in the world about that information right now. And, uh, I, you know, I, I think that that's, that's going to be an interesting process um, in, it, in and of itself uh, in terms of clarifying who gets access to this information and, yeah, so and, I, how, I and how is that used. To, yeah, it's important to point out that the biomarker tests are a little bit different from, say, the genetic tests, right, Mm -hmm. Uh, in the sense, uh, and, you know, I mean, I guess the thing that's going to be interesting is it wouldn't surprise me at some point if we may actually have uh, molecular types of therapies to treat the genetic forms of uh, autosomal dominant Alzheimer's disease. But it's like, I mean, I'll use an example of Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, right? That mm-hmm. was a disorder that for years we we weren't really able to treat. Those boys died in their late teens, early 20s. Uh, we got better in managing the disease. But now we've gotten to the point where we're able to give them a gene therapy that actually skips over where they have their deletion. And for those kids... You know, we're, we are able to ha- almost normalize their dystrophin, and then they have a, a, a much more normal lifespan, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that, you know, when you start thinking about the, the genetic disorders, and, and I think that's one of the things that, that, that the, the healthcare system, our healthcare system is going to have to address. And I, I know we've already tried to address it in the Affordable Care Act. You know, when I was taking care of MS patients, you know, you almost didn't want to diagnose somebody with MS uh, because then there was this issue of there was it a pre-existing condition and they could never move to another area and change their insurance. And now that's no longer we're not allowing to do that. Uh, uh, the, the insurers can't do that anymore. And I suspect that you know. We're going to be doing the same. We're going to have to put in those same kinds of protections for biomarkers, even though it's a little bit different than having the disease itself. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. It is. It is very complicated. I mean, I've heard more um, people say, "Well, the doctor said I'm not going to put this in your chart until maybe you've gone and applied for long-term, you know, insurance or something like that," and uh, which has been really nice, and people have really appreciated that. Um, significantly, but you know that. But that's a crapshoot on on who you're working with within the within the industry. But there are so many you know various um, impacts with this. People worry about you know driving. Will I will I still be able to drive, or is someone going to someone going to find out that I don't want to know, or my employer? Um, is this going to end up being a, an issue, you know, regarding that? So I, I, I just think that there are a lot of um, little ethical issues that that need to be um, discussed, you know, openly in terms of how things are how things are handled regarding that. But you know, I'm I'm very much for early diagnosis. Um, but I would also, you know, one of the things that I would like to see is an evening out, um, kind of a, a hand in hand between not everything necessarily having to be a medical fix 
in order to improve quality of life. I, I would love to see a cure, but I think there are so many things that are offered out there, and I've experienced that myself with my mom in terms of people being um, feeling purposeful and engaged um, to help fend off you know, a lot of the symptoms. And I think that's why my mom lived as long as she did. And I hear that over mm-hmm. and over again from people. And I don't see doctors being as knowledgeable in terms of some of those uh, those pieces as well. I think of like when somebody, you know, got diagnosed with diabetes, well, you know, you had a consultation with a nutritionist and there was medication. And I, I'm not seeing those two things go hand in hand when a dementia diagnosis, you know, um, hits. Right. Well, so I think that you bring up a good point is that, you know, because of the biomarkers right now, there's so much emphasis in terms of, you know, beta amyloid and treating that. But there's certainly data to suggest that, and I would say this was true in MS, Parkinson's disease, as well as Alzheimer's disease, that if you didn't smoke, if you exercised, if you had uh, normal vitamin D levels, that all those things were would be advantageous for you. And, you know, if you look at large populations, if you look at the people who smoke versus who don't smoke, the people who don't smoke, get all. if they get Alzheimer's disease, they get it later. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know a single neurodegenerative disease that isn't helped in the sense of either pushing back the time that it's diagnosed and slowing down the progression if you're doing exercise, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and there's there's a lot of uh, things in, uh, in that kind of vein that often aren't necessarily emphasized uh, within the, the community at large. So I, mm-hmm. I, I, totally, I totally get that, you know. Uh, I think the other thing that you brought up a very good point, I know, for example, uh, Dr. Fernandez at the Pat Summit Clinic at the University of Tennessee has been very much involved looking at uh, what happens to eye movements and in that there are people who very early in their Alzheimer's, they still would be able to get around for the most part for their cognitive function is pretty good, but their visual spatial skills are affected such that in fact it is dangerous for them to drive, that that's Mm -hmm. like the most dangerous activity they could be engaged in. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, uh, you know, one of those things that, you know, when we talk about personalized medicine, right? I think mm-hmm. one of the things uh, that, you know, when we talk about these biomarkers is that we can use the biomarkers to really identify what type of dementia you have. But I think mm-hmm. the next step is going to be even more that we're going to try to be able, once, you know, right now we're at this stage, we really, we sort of have, I would almost say, half a treatment, right? Aducanumab mm-hmm. has been approved, but because uh, uh, CMS has basically said you ha- they're only going to pay for it if you're involved in a clinical trial, uh, it's not really available to many people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. But I think what's going to, but once, think about when, you know, 10 years from now, let's say there's 10 treatments, right? Mm-hmm. then we're going to want to know very specifically what, not just like do you have Alzheimer's disease, what variant of Alzheimer's disease, disease do you have? Are we going to be using a treatment that's very specific for you? And I think that's the other thing that we're starting to see more and more of in medicine is the, uh, one of the things that uh, has become very clear over the last few years is about, of the new drugs approved by the FDA have an associated biomarker so that they're really, you know, looking at the ability of a drug to target a very specific patient population. And this isn't just an Alzheimer's disease. This is across medicine in general. And so Mm -hmm. I think that all as all these kinds of drugs, uh, new advances are being made. It's going to be helpful 
because it's going to allow us to select the very best treatments for a, a specific patient. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it, there's just, like you said, there's so many variables um, with it all. And it's been nice to see, you know, more sharing of knowledge and collaborative efforts. Um, anyways, from, from my perception, and maybe I'm wrong, but when it comes to new therapies and new diagnostic processes, it, it seems to me, and again, maybe I'm wrong, and if so, please correct me, but it seemed like everybody was more siloed like 10 years ago than what they are today. Do you see that, or is that just a goofy perception on someone who doesn't know much about anything? No, I mean, well, so I guess <laughs> It's you know it's it's interesting though the way you uh, you you put that I feel like the there is more interconnectedness and I don't know if that's in part because you know just of the way technology is uh, you know I can use the example and we're part we we partner with a number of these big groups so for example the ADNIA you know the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative is mm-hmm. a collaborative across the country. Uh, but one of the things that's also clear, and now we're being, getting involved with a number of other groups to try, you know, uh, I think one of the things that was clear is that in a lot of the early clinical trials, they, they really were uh, mostly in patients of Northern, you know, European descent. And now, we're looking to see whether the same sort of things are true in more diverse populations, which obviously, you know, as the United States becomes more diverse, it's going to be important for us to be able to see how do these biomarkers work across different patient populations, you know. Uh, and I think that's going to be another important area of research for not just Alzheimer's disease, but, you know, in general, to try to understand the differences in the genetic backgrounds and how that affects our ability to treat diseases. Sure, sure. Um, what do you see in the future, you know, coming? What What's your vision? Well, I was going to say, so in terms, you know, so right now, if you look at some of the early phase trials, we're seeing treatments that are showing promise both for uh, treating amyloid and cow, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think one of the things that's, that's very clear is that, you know, if we have, a, say, a trial that shows that we're able to prevent disease or delay disease because we really are able to remove amyloid quickly in patients, you know, 20 years before they are destined to get Alzheimer's disease. That's going to be big. I think the, the other thing that's interesting is that there's a whole other field looking at what we call proteomics, looking at the differences in proteins. Uh, between healthy people and people with diseases like Alzheimer's disease. And is that going to allow us to develop other treatments other than right now where where we mostly are targeting things like uh, amyloid and tau uh, because those are the prominent proteins that are uh, causing the characteristic pathology in Alzheimer's disease. But there's probably steps early on in the process that we might be able to to target in such a way. And we need to understand, too, like, why is it that if one has low vitamin D, how does that really contribute to people getting Alzheimer's disease, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Why is there this big difference in gender? You know, women get Alzheimer's disease twice as much as men. And, you know, what's, what's the biologic basis for that, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And is that something that we can utilize to help treat people with Alzheimer's or or prevent them from getting Alzheimer's disease? I think that, you know, right now I would argue that the biggest thing that we need to do is prevent people from getting Alzheimer's disease 
because by the time they have it, you know, we just aren't very, we, we've never been good at being able to uh, stimulate neurons to d- divide and uh, uh, regenerate. You know, mm-hmm. we have to prevent the ones that are there from dying in the first place. Sure, sure. I, I'm going to check on another caller here and just double check. So I'm going to pull in a caller from a 6697 number, 6697. You are live and on the air. Did you have a question or a comment? Your area code is a 984 number. We'd love to hear from you, but maybe you're just listening to. Um, no, no. Hello. If, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And what is your name? Uh, my name is John. Hi, John. And, and do you have a uh, so, have, so so my I have an older mother who's going through early early issues. Uh, one of her friends got something called a restore you test from Quest. Is Dr. Racky familiar with that? I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, so I I, I would say the restore you test is mostly looking at things that are for reversible causes of dementia, right? Uh, And so that is going to be looking at, like, is your thyroid okay? Uh, Do you have any metal toxicities? Do you have any evidence of an infection that could be causing uh, or uh, some other uh, biochemical abnormality that, that could cause you to have impaired cognitive function. Uh, and I think one of the things that the, what's nice about the Restore You is that if everything is okay in the Restore You uh, and you're still having issues, then you're probably uh, a person that would be uh, would that be good or to get evaluated whether you have a, a neurodegenerative condition. And one of the things I should point out is, you know, back in the day, I, I remember like, you know, when we would evaluate, get a history and physical and look and see exactly what were the manifestations of a person's uh, underlying disorder. And even if you were at an Alzheimer's clinic, you know, it turned out that a significant number of those people, when they went to autopsy that were called Alzheimer's disease, didn't necessarily have it. Or, you know, they were called something else and they had the pathology of Alzheimer's disease. And so what Restore You does and what the biomarker testing does is basically looks at all the things that we can look at in the blood and say, okay, what are the things that we potentially can correct? Uh, And once we've corrected all those things, where are we then in terms of cognitive function? Does that answer your question, John? Yes, thank you very much. Wonderful. So, Doctor, uh, I have a question for you. Um, so, you know, when the the blood test is being done, so that wouldn't pick up like things that can cause um, issues with cognition, like lack of sleep or stress or dehydration or maybe a mix of medications. Is that correct? Right. So the biomarker is very specific. I mean very specific for the molecules that are being assessed, right? So mm-hmm. our, you know, the the test that, well, the reason we're probably having this conversation is that in April we launched what we call AD Detect, which looks in the plasma or in the blood at the uh, ratio of beta amyloid 40 to beta amyloid uh, 42. And I think the, the thing that's important to, to recognize is that there are other things that can affect your cognitive function. And I would say one of the things that's really important to to note, like you were saying in terms of uh, sleep or uh, uh, in terms of, you know, psychiatric illnesses that often can cause changes, uh, people can have what we call limbic encephalitis due to a paraneoplastic disorder, meaning a disorder associated with cancer that can mimic what what appears to be Alzheimer's disease, often faster than clinically than what you would see typically with Alzheimer's disease. 
And some of these things can actually be treated, right? And so that's a, that's an important thing uh, to note. Uh, and so, you know, when we think about, you know, whenever I see uh, somebody with uh, uh, dementia, and certainly if their imaging looks normal, then that really makes you think, well, Alzheimer's disease, by the time somebody has cognitive dysfunction with Alzheimer's disease, they almost always have atrophy. And so what could be the other things that are affecting this person uh, and affecting their cognition when they don't have necessarily the, uh, the rest of a picture that looks like Alzheimer's disease? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm just going to check with John and see if he had any other follow-up questions. John, did you have any other comments that, that you'd like to make or questions? Well, you pointed out an important aspect of uh, medications and sleep. They can all be, as doctor called them, reversible causes. Mm-hmm. How how do we get my mother's doctor to examine all of that? Right. So that, I mean, so that's a very good point. Uh, and, you know, obviously if they went that they restore you, they're sort of looking for those things. The other thing that I think is really important to point out, you know, I mentioned earlier about exercise, but there's things like, you know, when you start looking at people who have vascular disease, who have type 2 diabetes, they might not have type 2 diabetes yet, but have insulin resistance. Those people are going to have faster neurodegeneration, right? And so I think one of the things that, you know, has become very clear is that, you know, for lack of a better term, a healthy lifestyle is important, right? Uh, that that for if we do all those things like try not to be obese, and it's interesting because I just saw an important medical journal, the Today Show this morning, that they were talking about sleep and the fact that, you know, if you have uh, disordered sleep or don't have good sleep, that it increases your risk for vascular disease and things like stroke, you know. And so, uh, you know, these are all, in, in many ways, I always say it's intertwined. The brain is our most complicated organ, and it really requires everything else to be functioning top-notch so that the brain can be functioning top-notch. Yeah, to your question, John, too, you know, in trying to get a doctor, you know, to, to step up, I mean, you could ask them, but if it's a general practitioner, a lot of times they don't always have all of the knowledge in terms of the separation of, of you know, is it this or is it is it that, because it's not their specialty. So, I, you know... I would go in and even, you know, see if you can get a referral to a neurologist that specializes in dementia because, you know, they're very aware. And many many of the clinics now are setting up teams. So they have social workers and they have all different types of people on this team to try to get to the bottom of what's causing the cognition um, impairment there. Um, that that would be that would be my recommendation. And again, sometimes you just have to mention these things to the doctors, you know, because they don't always know. De- dehydration, you would think, would be a very simple one. Stress, you know, if the person has always been kind of a worry wart, um, they always say that as we as we age, um, those those characteristics can become um, bigger and bolder in our personalities, but stress can have a huge, huge effect. Um, Dr. Aki mentioned about depression and depression can, I mean, I know with my mom, they, they said, Oh, it's just your hormones, Dorothy, you know, cause she was 55 initially. And then they said, Oh, she's depressed. And my mom's like, that's not what this is. You know, I know that's not what this is. And it took 10 years to get to the bottom of it. Most people now are telling me, and this is people around the world, it takes them two to three years to get a full diagnosis. You can go to the pharmacy and ask for an analysis of your medications because they have a much better handle on that. 
Um, sometimes people go to sleep studies to kind of see because they don't know if they're if they live alone or if their spouse just sleeps really heavily. They have no idea how often they're up at night, and so they're finding you know a lot of people um, that's something that can be corrected. Um, even even nutrition, you know, what is somebody eating? Somebody lives alone, a lot of times they're not eating really well, and that can have an effect on them too. So, you know, I would push the doctor. You have to be you have to be a stern advocate, and if you're not getting the answers you feel you deserve, then ask ask for a second opinion. You know, you have the right to that. Um, Doctor okay. Racky, anything else you want to add to that? No, I think and I think it's very important the the point you brought up regarding evaluation by a neurologist, particularly if you're uh, you go to like a memory clinic or something like mm-hmm. that, because uh, then they really can look that they're they're really good at looking and asking all the questions and uh, uh, trying to help you in terms of things like trying to find out if it is a sleep issue or some other disorder that's affecting the cognition uh, mm-hmm. and that it's not necessarily a neurodegenerative disease. Exactly. Great question. So thanks so much for calling in, John. Appreciate that very much. Um, I can't believe our time is wrapping up here already, and I want to make sure that people have uh, your information. So um, you can go to Quest diagnostics.com they are also on facebook and again you can just put in quest diagnostics and they'll show up on twitter their handle is quest dx quest dx and they also have a company profile quest diagnostics on linkedin as well um we've got just just a couple of minutes left any any last words dr ranke no, I think that uh, you know we're we're at the early stages of utilizing these plasma tests, but I really think that it's going to help identify patients to get into clinical trials and improve the quality and speed in which we're able to evaluate these drugs as they're coming down the pike to to help people with disorders like Alzheimer's disease. So I, I think it's really uh, I'm very optimistic that in the next uh, decade we're going to make a lot of progress on this disease. Yep, I I sure hope you're right. I sure hope you're right. I know that um, people, you know, felt bad with even the studies and stuff. Some of them had to, you know, were put on hold uh, during COVID and stuff, and and people are are anxious. Uh, to see new things um, that, you know, will be safe and, and ethical, uh, you know, within within the practice and stuff. And, again, I, you know, if, if you can learn early on that this might be an issue for you, and I know that, you know, even if you have the genes, not, not always does everybody end up with it, and we still don't know why that is. Um, but you can become much more proactive in terms of what you do. Uh, you know, you had mentioned uh, exercise, and a lot of times people don't realize that exercise is getting more oxygen to your brain. That's, you know, and it's making your health um, healthier, and all those organs work together in miraculous ways. People don't totally understand um, watching, you know, the sleep and the stress and and um, making sure that you're hydrated, because a lot of times when people are elderly too, they don't like to, they don't like to stay hydrated because they might be having problems getting to the bathroom on, t- on time. So there's there's multiple levels um, that we don't always realize, uh, you know, with people and what they're dealing with. And so it's important that you you find somebody that is willing to ask questions to to get to the bottom. So, um, Dr. Racky, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I love, you know, what you guys are doing at uh, Quest Diagnostics, and um, I really just appreciate your time. So thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Great. And for our listeners, I hope you like, click, and share. You know, don't don't keep um, these shows to yourself. Everybody needs knowledge. Uh, it's something that you can listen to in the background and still 
pick up great information, but, you know, pass these things along. It just makes us all feel a little bit better and more empowered uh, if we would have to deal with this in the future or if we're in the thick of it right now. So have a blessed week, everybody. We'll talk talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye now. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire. Become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.